Not sure exactly how to interpret that when the biggest response of our worship time is around the coffee. But anyway, we're going to go with that. Um, greetings, Pastor Paul here. Open your Bibles, please, to First Timothy chapter 2. You know, growing up, our family would often go for a drive in the Tennessee mountains on a Sunday afternoon in October. So you got the fall foliage, the, the apple cider on the side of the road at the stand. You have the bluegrass music, of course. And I know it sounds exhilarating, but let me just assure you, it was not. Um, it was nauseating. I mean, literally, my sister and I hunkered down in the back seat of that 1973 Chevy Nova, the windy roads and the twists and the turns, and about died back there. And of course, this was the same experience for my wife, Susan. She narrates the story where her and her family traveled to Washington, D.C. from West Tennessee. Um, two families, eight people, stuffed them in her family's wood-paneled Brady Bunch station wagon. Remember those, everybody? They, they, they stuffed the kids, the four kids in the back of the crawl space all the way there, halfway across the country. You see, it's what you had to do in the 1970s, right, to behave properly as a family. And that's the Apostle Paul's concern in this letter to Timothy that we've been studying. He's writing that they would know how to behave properly as the family of God. 1 Timothy 3.14, of course, is our theme verse over this letter when Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to, there's the word, behave in the household of God. And as we've seen, if you've been with us in chapter 1, Paul has been keen on addressing issues around truth and false teachers and doctrine. But now in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to what happens when the church body, the church family comes together, kind of like we are doing this morning. And he has all sorts of specific instructions for them related to how they're worshiping, how they're praying, how they're dressing themselves, how they're teaching. And what's important to understand, church, as we're looking at these passages in 1 Timothy 2, Paul's not just sort of willy-nilly dropping knowledge here, right? Throwing his weight around. In actuality, Paul has a burning heart he has a burning desire, as we saw last week, for all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. And for Paul, he viewed this idea of worship, of gathering together as God's family like we're doing here right now, as an opportunity to have the church live out the beauty and the glory of God. However, in reality, the meetings, the church gatherings at the church in Ephesus here were anything but. They were confusing. They were divisive. Um, they were not particularly compelling. Um, there, there, there was no order. There was no design. Everything was sort of done in this haphazard way. And Paul is addressing these things. And we come to the issue this morning because it was particularly true of this church in Ephesus that they were very confused about what it meant to be men and what it meant to be women. What did it mean to be made in the image of God as man and woman to relate together in the family of God in a way that displays the glory and the beauty and the design of God? And that's what Paul is addressing in our text today, and that's 
what we're going to be addressing. And so if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand as we read God's Word this morning. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, undoubtedly um, one of the more talked about, debated, controversial passages in all of the Bible, certainly in the New Testament. Let's read it together and then ask God to help us. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Father, as your people, um, we come to a text like this, and we freely confess we need your help. Lord, we first just need your help to know what you're saying, what your word is teaching, what it's not teaching, where it's pointing us to. And then secondly, Lord, we just need the courage to obey your word and the wisdom and the discernment and the insight Lord, we, we confess that as your people, we bring all sorts of baggage to a text like this. All sorts of experiences, all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of family dynamics, church experiences in history. And so, Father, we are very keenly aware that we need your Holy Spirit to bring clarity in our midst. And we're asking that you would do it. In your name we pray. Amen. Take a seat. Brooks, I don't have to tell you that it's always been the case for the church in the last 2,000 years that there's going to be some sections of God's word which are going to seem, culturally speaking, much more compelling than other sections, much more palpable, much more winsome. And all of that, of course, depends on what era and culture and time of world history you grow up in. So, So, for example, we know that the Bible says a lot about what it means to care for the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed. In fact, part of Paul's instructions later to Timothy um, deals with this whole issue of widows and orphans. And, and, you know, for us as a culture, that's a value that our culture tends to celebrate here and now in the 21st century. But interestingly enough, not at Paul's time. Okay? Th- those were revolutionary thoughts in Paul's time. However, there are other issues for us today culturally in the 21st century that the Bible speaks to, like the one in our text, okay, dealing with men and women, which let's be honest, for much of us, and certainly for our culture, it seems to be very jarring, very disjunctive, even, shall we say, culturally shocking, if not offensive or outright dangerous, And my guess is that in a room this size, there's probably predominantly two sorts of responses to 
reading a text like this. And, and the first might be from some of you when, when you say, well, well, well Pastor Paul, what, what's the problem here? You know, there, there's no problem. I have no problem with this text. God said it. You've heard this before, right? God said it. I believe it. That settles it, all right? So, so let's go to it. Tell us what to do. Just tell us what to do. Get to it. Get to the point, Pastor Paul. And that might be you. There, there's also a second group of you I know. You're, you're, you're not just saying, I don't have a problem. You're saying, Pastor Paul, I think you have a problem, right? Um, have you lost your mind? This is the 21st century. Don't you know that people are leaving the church in droves? Don't, don't you know that the church is being confined to this little corner of irrelevance? Hey, it's time for the church to grow up. It's time to be progressively minded about these things and try to move past these sort of archaic notions and like get into the 21st century. Don't you know, Pastor Paul, people leave the church over these kinds of things. And, and let me just say something. As, as different as both of those responses are, they're, they're actually very similar in this particular way. Neither of them pause long enough to attempt to understand the why. Neither, neither of them stop and pause long enough to say, no, no, why would Paul give us these instructions? What truths or what vision is Paul appealing to that would lead him to write these things? See, and if, and if we miss this why question, if we miss the underlying principle driver, the vision behind this, church, we're going to badly misuse this text. We, we are going to do hurtful things with it. Or we may just ignore it entirely, right? It's just too messy, too complicated. We're not going there. But can I just say in either case, if you fall into one of those two camps, by not asking the why question, we're missing out on the glorious, beautiful vision that Paul gives us for what it means to be made male and female, man and woman in the image of God. And so, so let, let, me, let me tell you where we're, we're going to go this, in this message here. There's some good news and some bad news. Which do you want to hear first? Well, I'm deciding. We're going to hear the bad news, okay? This is going to be one very long message. That's the bad news. The t- <laughs> You're like, is there any other kind of news that will help us? To the good news, we're going to take two weeks to unpack this, okay? And today, I want to look at that vision piece, that theology piece, that foundational doctrinal framework. And then next week, when y'all are all gone to spring break, we'll look at the text itself. It'll be great. Um, No, next week is when we'll get into more of the specific applications and unpack the text specifically. Let Let me tell you the reason we're going to do this, okay? The reason we're going to sort of slow down and sort of ask those why questions and make sure we're straight on those. Do you realize that the other, one of the other famous passages in the New Testament where Paul deals with these sorts of issues between men and women, particularly in marriage, is in where? Ephesians 5, which was actually written to this same church. So when Paul is giving these instructions about how they're to conduct themselves as men and women in the household of God, he, there, there's a bottom line assumption that they already know the thing behind the thing. 
They already know what's undergirding it. They already know the story of redemption. They already, they already have the why question kind of firmly in mind. And so he goes right to the instruction. And for us, I don't think we need to make that assumption about where we all are for a few reasons. One, there's a lot of you who are new to this church family. I'm amazed that for all of the sort of chaos and disrupt of the past year, I cannot remember a time, at least in the last eight or 10 years, when so many new people have migrated into the church. And you just may simply be unfamiliar or unaware of passages like this. Some of you might be new Christians, and, and, and you've got the gospel, and I love the gospel, and I love Jesus, and you've just never maybe even considered these things. For some of you, you may have been walking with the Lord for a long time, maybe even a lifetime, and you're very familiar with this text, but it's been so long since we've visited it, right? It's been so long since you've gone there, what you have probably found is that over time, your worldview about these things has been shaped more by cultural sensibilities than scriptural realities. See, that's the natural move for all of us with anything in life. When we are fighting to press forward, whether it's with our diet or nutrition or our exercise or our disciplines, we're having to fight constantly against sort of that principle of entropy, right? Of, of disorder invading our lives. Guys, that's the same reality we face spiritually. If we're not constantly leaning into the Word of God, pressing in, looking at it to, to, to interpret reality for us, then, guys, our culture is very glad to do that for us and has in many ways. And so we want to really push back against that proactively. And so we're going to look at several passages this morning, and this is going to be just a bit more teachy than preachy, if I can use those terms. We'll insert a little preaching in there, here and there. But, but, but we're going to really unpack several passages. And these passages, in fact, will be our main points. Okay, And so we're going to look first at Genesis chapter 1. And one of the reasons we are going to go to Genesis 1 first is that in this text of 1 Timothy 2, Paul, in fact, references Genesis as he is explaining why there is a distinction of roles and functions between men and women in the life of the church. But we want to go all the way back to Genesis 1, 26-27, and all these texts will be on the screen for you. So let, let's read this one first. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now we know that in the, New, in the Old Testament, the writers make it crystal clear that there is a unity in the Godhead. The Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6 Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? One. God is a singularity. But what we find unfolded throughout the pages of the Scriptures in the New Testament, progressively speaking, is that not only is God a unity, but he's also a diversity. He is, in fact, one being comprised 
mysteriously, granted, but nonetheless comprised of three different persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we call this the Trinity. Now, what's interesting when we look at Genesis 1 is that this Trinitarian reality even begins to emerge from the first pages of Scripture. Know when it says, God said, let us make man. Now, who is us? Well, scholars debate these things, and and some would say, well, he's speaking to the angels or the heavenly host. But the problem with that is that the angels and the heavenly host aren't made in the image of God in the way that man is. And so God seems to be speaking in his singularity to himself in all of his personhood. In fact, Colossians 1, I believe, tells us that is exactly what's happening. Because Colossians 1 tells us who was it that was the agent of creation? Who was it that through whom and for whom all things were made? It was who? Jesus. It was Jesus was here creating on the first pages of Scripture. And we see the Spirit, do we not? When it tells us later in Genesis that, that over the chaos of all of this water and unformed matter was hovering the Spirit of God. And so from the very first pages, we see this idea that God is both a unified, he's a unity, but at the same time, he is a diversity. He is one being in three persons. Now, wh- why, do we, why are we camping out on that one? That's crucial. Can I just say absolutely crucial to understand in helping us know why it was that God created two different kinds of people versus two people who were identical or of the same sex, whether they were male or female. See, in order to capture both the unity and the diversity of God, God had to make both man and woman. Do you see that? There's a unity between them in that they're both made in the image of God. They're both of the same substance and essence. Both man and woman are of equal worth and value. They are, after all, image bearers. However, they are different. They reflect the image of God differently. It's very right to say, okay, men, that, that your wives reflect the image of God in a different way than you do. Women, it's very right to say your husband reflects the image of God in a way that you do not. And, and, and that it takes this complementarian pair to fully reflect the glory in the image of who God is. And by the way, this is self-evident, right? This is, this is, this is by, both by design, God's design, and by nature. Tim and Kathy Keller, I'm going to have several quotes from them. And their book, by the way, The Meaning of Marriage, is outstanding, It is excellent. And listen to what they say. Using all the qualifiers in the world, we won't go into those, but using all the qualifiers, in other words, I know that there are women in this room who can run faster than me. I've said it. There it is, right? Okay. Using all the, and probably lift more weights and all that. Using all the qualifiers in the world in general, as a whole, and across the spectrum, men have a gift of independence a sending gift. They look outward. They initiate. They lead. 
In the same way, using all the qualifiers in the world, on the whole and across the spectrum, women have a gift of interdependence, a receiving gift. They are inwardly perceptive. They nurture. Here's the takeaway line. The dance of the Trinity would lead us to expect differences such as these, as well as others, if we are made in the image of the triune dancing God. Do you understand, church, what they're saying? They're saying that just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are of one essence with different roles, and we see that, by the way, in the economy of redemption, this is, this is blatantly clear. It is the Father, what, who decrees. It is the Father who sins. It is the Father who orders. It's the Son who goes to fulfill the mission of the Father. So how many times in his ministry does Jesus say, not my will, but whose? The Father's. The Father's. This does not make Jesus any less God. This does not make Jesus inferior in his being. It simply means that the Father, the Son, have, while being one essence and of the same substance, have different roles and different functions. We see the Holy Spirit in the same way. Jesus says, I've got to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come and indwell you. And we see that even the Spirit has a different role. It's the Spirit who indwells, who encourages, who comforts, who convicts. And so, so, we're saying all that to say that when we begin to think about the roles of men and women, church, please hear this, we are treading on holy ground. That, that, that man and woman as made in the image of God reflect something together. And by the way, this is not just in the marriage relationship. We'll talk about this more, a little more next week. But man and woman reflect the image of God in distinct ways that what we get by coming together as the family of God is a clearer picture of who God is. And so, so this is mysterious. There's no question about it. And, and some of this is, is, is beyond us to try to, to flesh out in the time that we have. But it is real and it is true and it is glorious and it is beautiful. Now, Genesis 2 fleshes this out a little bit more for us. So let's read this. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now the, the Kellers note that this word for helper, Azar, okay, doesn't mean just merely to assist someone. Okay, that, that's kind of the way we think about helper. So in other words, you're in your house, you're looking men to, to lift a box, and it's heavy, um, and you know, of course, you could do it by yourself if you really wanted to, right? But you, but you call over your wife, and you say, can you, can you help me lift this box? I, honey, I could, I could really do it on my own, but I just don't want to strain my back, or whatever. 
And, and she makes it a little easier for you to do something you know in yourself you could already do. That's not, okay, the way that this term is used. Helper, do you realize this? That helper in the scriptures most often refers in the Old Testament to whom? To God, who is our ever-present, what? Help in time of trouble. It, in fact, in many contexts, it literally means Savior. And it's used in those contexts of helper, meaning God, when man is called to do something that he simply cannot do on his own. That he needs the redemptive work and power of God himself to come and to, in a sense, complete him. To, to, to give meaning, to accomplish something that otherwise would not be accomplishable. If, I could, if that's even a word, okay? I don't even know if it is, but just go with it, okay? And guys, let me just say that I can testify to this from personal experience. The single greatest blessing and personal relationship in my life, by far, it's not even close, is with my wife, Susan. When I think of, listen, not just where I would be, okay, but more importantly, who I would be, apart from her beauty and wisdom and creativity that she brings into my heart, our family, her ministry here at the church, our children. So many times I feel like Adam, right? When I want to say, at last, at last. And husbands, may God open the eyes of your heart to see your wife in a similar way because it is fundamentally true. Where would we be? Who would we be? It's God's very means of dispensing grace. That is the, the nature of the word helper in this passage. And it means to emphasize something, and we, we cannot forget it. Both men and women in the family of God, in your own families, are vitally important, are vitally needed, are fundamentally necessary. Both are dependent upon the other. And it takes the wonder of a man and woman together for us to see God in his full glory, to give us a picture of God. And so when we start fiddling okay, with the definitions of marriage or the roles of men and women, please understand we are, we are treading on sacred ground. We are in a place where God gives us, okay, the gift of diversity of the sexes, equal but different, because he wants us to know something fundamentally unique about him. Now, let me just say a couple of qualifiers here. Um, this does not mean, by the way, that if you're single or divorced or a widower or a widow, that somehow, okay, you are divorced from these realities or cut off from these blessings fundamentally not true. In fact, Paul addresses many of those folks in 1 Timothy. I think what Paul would be telling us is this is why we need the family of God. This is why we need our groups. This is why we need our Bible studies. This is why we need our relationships. This is why we need one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in the church 
Because as we're going to see in this next passage, marriage is a very temporary thing. Now let's look at Luke 20. And I I think this is one of the more fascinating texts in all of Scripture. And let's read it. There came to him, meaning Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, just leave it to the religious leaders for this next question. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Okay, at that point in time, Jesus is probably like, I'm out of here, okay, with these guys. But Jesus does the spiritual jujitsu. He flips it around and listens to what he says. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now that phrase, the sons of this age are given in marriage. It's a reminder that when God gave mankind the ordinance of marriage, it was for everyone, not just for Christians. It was part of the creation ordinance. Marriage was baked into the reality of human existence from the very first pages to to do what we've been talking about, to give us a picture of God and his unity and diversity. And so even non-Christians, please hear this, in a sense, reflect the image of God and they pattern and mirror themselves after their realities. Now, one of the problems of the church in Ephesus was that these false teachers were prohibiting marriage. They were saying, look, if you're really holy, okay, you know, marriage is just kind of for the common folk, but if you're really holy, if you're really spiritual, you won't get married. And, and, and Paul sort of drives a, a dagger into that. However, Paul says, in that age, and now he's speaking about the future age, the resurrected age, the eternal age, Paul says, there won't be marriage. And that, 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 that in some ways, it's, that's a sobering reality, right? <laughs> like, wait a minute. This was my life partner. This was my soulmate. And we're going to be in heaven. And like, we're not married. And that's strange. And, 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 we, and, and it can kind of create sort of a deep kind of loss or sense. But Paul tells us in Ephesians why that is. Why there is no marriage in heaven. Look at Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Now, here's verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, now follow along with me just for a second, church. Paul, it's not like Paul is talking about the love that God has for his people through Christ, and he's thinking really hard like a preacher does to think about, now, hmm, I wonder what a good analogy for that is, or I wonder what a good metaphor or picture for this idea of Christ in the church. And he's kind of looking around. He's like, oh, marriage. Yeah, that, that's kind of like that. I'll kind of slip that one in as a nifty illustration, illustration. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying, in actuality, that marriage was given to us 
listen, specifically for the purpose of showing us the nature of the relationship between God and his people. In other words, marriage wasn't an afterthought. Neither was the death of Jesus Christ in the gospel an afterthought. From the very pages of scripture, first pages of Scripture, before sin even entered the world, God says, I'm going to give mankind marriage. So when they look at marriage, and understand this, your marriage is a parable. Your marriage is a living, living walking, talking, breathing illustration of what the gospel and Jesus' love for his people is all about. So why no marriage in heaven? Very simple. We won't need it. We won't need it. See, in heaven, we will see Jesus face to face. In heaven, we won't need a living, breathing picture of the gospel. Why? Because we're going to be the picture. We're going to be in, you know, it's like watching a movie and you're seeing all the actors carry out their specific roles to depict the reality. And it's as Paul is saying, no, no, in heaven, you are, you're in the picture. You are the picture. You're going to see Jesus face to face. You're going to have unhindered, unbroken communion with the God of the universe, with Jesus Christ. You won't need marriage anymore. See, marriage is just a temporary institution. And that can be sobering, but can also be encouraging. And and the Kellers talk about this in their book, that sometimes we can come to marriage with unprecedented expectations. We can come to marriage asking our spouse or that marriage to do things that no human could ever do. Forgetting that the marriage itself is meant to be a picture of the gospel for this time and age. And so it doesn't make it less important. It just puts it in its proper perspective to know that, hey, I want to use all of the time I have in this life to live in a way with Susan or you live in a way with your spouse in a way that beholds the gospel clearly for everyone around us to see. And so what happens, and you can see how much is at stake now, This is not about cultural tastes, preferences, pragmatics. When we begin to tinker with roles, with gender, with marriage, with the relationships between men and women, we ultimately are hurting ourselves because we lose the gospel in the process. And let me tell you two reasons. One, we lose the gospel because we lose biblical authority. See, when, when we begin to question passages like this, have you noticed this? It never stops there, does it? So oftentimes, this is just a slippery one-way slope where we begin to question all the other doctrines we happen to don't like culturally. We don't like what the Bible says about the exclusivity of the gospel or Jesus being the only way. So we say, hmm... Did God really say, where did we hear that one before in Genesis 3? We, we don't like heaven and hell, or we don't like the wrath of God, or we don't like the substitutionary atonement of Christ because it's this idea of bloody sacrifice. And so when we begin to go down this road, 
we lose so much more. We lose biblical authority. And two, we lose the gospel because when we denigrate the differences between men and women and obscure them, we lose God. See, we can't tinker with the design of men and women as image bearers and not expect to distort our vision of God in some important way. To be obscured about his true character. There is something that we learn from one another as men and women, as, as unique individual image bearers that gives us a greater sense of who God is. And that is what is happening in the church in Ephesus. And so Paul gets right to it. This is why Paul devotes an entire section. This is why Paul begins poking and prodding on areas that quite honestly, culturally, we're not comfortable with, right? Who is this Paul telling me what to wear? Who is this Paul telling me how to pray? Who is this Paul telling me how to teach or not teach or how to listen or not listen? But Paul does this because he wants us to embrace the glorious vision of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we lead into next week, I want to leave you with two sort of exhortations, okay? Two sort of stakes in the ground to be thinking, praying, pondering, meditating on between now and next week. Number one, we don't ever need to apologize for the word of God. Don't apologize, but in the heart, in your heart of hearts, affirm Four Oaks, trust God by trusting his word. God always knows what's best. Don't try to be more clever than God. Don't try to rescue God from his own word. Don't do that. Let God be God. See, there's always this impulse in every culture, and it's been happening for hundreds of years, thousands of years, that if we don't change X, then the church is going to be irrelevant. If we don't change Y, the church is going to fail to adapt. The church, the, the church is going to be lost. People are forever going to abandon the church. And the issue is different for every culture and every age. But here is the paradox of what happens when we do this. The paradox of what happens is the exact opposite happens. The church is never saved. When the church abandons the word of God, it's never saved. Just ask the United Methodist Church right now. See, when we change God's word, there's no longer any reason for the church to exist. Because all the things the church does, like on a human level, programming level, you can find something out there that does that better. Absolutely. Except at Four Oaks. You get what I'm saying, right? But there's no reason for the church to exist as a called out separate people of God if it's not for the word of God. So don't apologize, affirm, and secondly, finally, don't disparage, but celebrate. See, I, I'm, I'm fully aware that this text and these topics can raise a whole host of issues. Some of you may be like, Pastor Paul, I don't have a problem like embracing the theology or the truths of what you're saying, I just feel really discouraged because I feel like I've really failed. 
I've really failed in my marriage. I failed to lead. Or wives, I failed to support. I failed to help. I just, I feel discouraged. I feel, I feel like this is not my, this is not my life. This is not the vision for my life. Or, or maybe you've had a, a negative church experience or negative authority experience where there has been like a real misuse of these concepts in these texts, whether it's abuse or manipulation or whatever that particular baggage is for you, domestic violence. I mean, it could be a hundred different things. And these are all things that would lead us, right, to disparage texts like this. But in reality, I think what we want to see is that these distinctions, when they are lived out by the people of God, by the Spirit of God, by the power of God, are not curses. They are blessings. And to cast them off is to cast off the true knowledge of God. And to cast off the true knowledge of God is to cast off your and my only source for true joy and flourishing in this life, and that's in Jesus Christ. I want to leave us with this, with this last encouragement. How interesting that the first pages of Scripture give witness to a wedding. A wedding that God performed, right? When he brought Adam and Eve together. But we know what happens in Genesis 3. Mankind makes a wreck of itself. Through sin, we destroy marriages, we destroy relationships, we blur um, ideologies, we blur gender roles, we, we take on the form of being God and that authority and think we can create these things for ourselves and it only leaves havoc and destruction in our midst. How interesting. Out of the brokenness of the first marriage, as we're going to look at next week, God ends human history with another wedding. And this is the wedding of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And this is where God's people are gathered together where there is no longer marriage to one another. There's only marriage to him. And he comes and he prepares a feast for his bride. And we are presented pure and spotless before him as the pure bride of Christ and Jesus says, welcome to my eternal joy. We are going to have an everlasting union together as you, my bride. This is why I came and laid my life down. This is why I gave you marriage in your former life. This is why I gave you gender roles and distinctions so that it can point to this day when we eat and drink at the table of the Lamb of God together, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world. Let's pray.